0: Do you view success? You know, we always hear people talk about, "Oh, he reached the pinnacle of success," or "She made it to the top," as if, I don't know, as if success is, is sort of this highest point of a journey, the very top of Mount Everest, past the Kumbu Icefall and the Hillary Step to the very peak. Yes, those are my Everest uh, references there. But once you get to the, this so-called point of success, oh, the top! You've won, right? You know, the common thread running through all the stories we tell here is that no one's climb to amazing success is free of stumbling blocks, sinkholes, or failure. But the story I'm here to tell you today is the first one we've done that really shows success is not a final destination. It's a point on the road, a road where you could get lost again and have to trace your footsteps or... Follow the breadcrumbs, all your experiences may have scattered along the path to to help you find your way back to it. And there's a reason I use the breadcrumbs analogy here. Bread figures prominently into the story of Dave Dahl. After multiple stints in prison, Dave ended up working in a tiny bakery in Oregon with his brother to create Dave's killer bread, which they later sold for millions of dollars. But that is far from the end of the story. We welcome Dave Dahl to Everyone Talks to Liz. Hi, Dave. Hi,
1: thank you for having me
0: here. Oh, we're we're thrilled. And by the way, Power Seed is my favorite. I love that bread.
1: That's the healthiest one, probably.
0: Oh, good. At least I'm doing that right to balance all the chocolate I eat. You know, I was reading about Dave's Killer Bread. It's now sold in... 22,000 stores?
1: You know, I've, I've lost track. I know that it's available on, you know, from the north to the south of the continent. It's everywhere. It's in it's in Spanish language labeling right now. It blows me away.
0: Oh, cool. I went this weekend to Target because I looked up on your website and it says where to find Dave's Killer Bread and they said Target. So I ran over there in my New Jersey town and there it was. And I was so excited. Was so excited. Very cool. Let's turn back the clock. You're growing up in Oregon, you're in your teens, one of four kids in the family, right? Describe yourself. I was uh
1: I would say I was a, a mess. Um <clears throat> I had very low self esteem from early on. Uh I don't I don't think I really had a fit in anywhere. And I was a seventh day Adventist. I went you know, we were all seventy Adventists, went to school. Uh seventh day Adventist schools and church and, and we worked and that was about it. We worked in the bakery. And so I didn't really have um, much of a life other than that and didn't really see much uh, much happening in my life.
0: What contributed to, I guess, your rebellious behavior? Was it that you maybe were raised in a relatively, I guess, rigid household where you worked or Certainly. you were doing religion?
1: I think all that contributed. There, There came a point in my life, and this was early. Um, I've changed a lot since then, by the way, but at that time, I, I gave up on um, what I was being taught. And I at that point, I didn't know where else I was going to go. I just knew I couldn't do that, so I got lost and spent my teenage years rebelling, but mm-hmm. uh, rebelling without a cause.
0: Your folks all this time are, what, toiling at their small bakery. What was their reaction? when you drifted and you sort of left the family flock?
1: Well, they, they you know, they couldn't really relate to it. They'd never really had the doubts that I had about Christianity and things I was taught. So um, they didn't really have the answers for me, and I was sincerely looking for answers. And so we fought a lot, and eventually became kind of estranged from each other.
0: What was it about Christianity that you didn't really understand, or you broke away from that. You felt it was something that you just couldn't wrap your arms around.
1: I thought that it was that somehow, in my mind, it got to be the point where God um, didn't seem like the God I wanted there to be. He was too mean. He was too too much like a man, too much like a, a human, mm-hmm. you know, and. Yeah. So I, I started thinking, well, the Bible is, is man's idea of what is going on, and let's find out what's really going on.
0: And that led you to, well, quite frankly, a life of crime. When did you first go to prison? What was the sentence?
1: I went to prison for burglary, and I got sentenced to seven years and did nine months. <laughs> that was
0: a what was you know, that first nine months like in prison? Because you ended up going back again and again.
1: Yeah, I wasn't learning, you know, really quickly about anything. I, each time I went to prison, I just tried to become a better criminal because oh. as a criminal, um, that was really my first identity that I actually saw as something I could call my own. And I wouldn't say I was good at it, but I was definitely willing to do whatever.
0: And it was burglary. It was robbery. Did you advance? Usually, criminals yeah. start to climb a ladder.
1: Yeah, and the thing was, by the t- every every time, by the time I learned and got a little bit better, I had already created a big hole for myself. Um, I, it was burglary. Then it was armed robbery. Then it was assault and things like that. And finally, uh, drug drug dealing and th- and uh, guns and such.
0: Well. During your time in prison, you experienced, I would imagine, many lows. Were you depressed and suicidal? I mean, uh, What was that like?
1: I was extremely depressed uh, whenever I didn't have my drug of choice, which was methamphetamine. Meth was the thing that gave me my first, I would call it my first transformation in life, Mm -hmm. where I started realizing I could actually do something about it. So depression, uh, I was able to leave the depression behind until I would get arrested, and you know, a few months into it, I was thinking about suicide, and especially the last time around,
0: which was a fifteen-year sentence. Correct?
1: It was actually a twenty-year sentence, um, actually one hundred and eighteen months, but I did uh, eighty-four or eighty-eight months.
0: Wow was Was there a life changing moment in prison during that time, and what really what got was. you to that?
1: Yeah. Well, I'd been depressed and suicidal for a long time. And, you know, I finally had, I I call it the humility uh, that I discovered to ask for help. And I put in a kite, they call it a kite, it's an inmate communication form.
0: Right, they to, call that a kite, correct? Yeah.
1: yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I put that into uh, psych services and I asked for, you know, I said I wanted to see somebody. They called me in and gave me um, a med. I didn't tell them I was suicidal. That would have been sabotaging the situation. But I just said I needed some help, and they gave me this med called um, Effexor. It actually was Paxil, eventually Effexor, that, you know, I don't know what actually added up to what, but... You know, between the meds, the humility, that, you know, the asking for help, the surrender, mm-hmm. and then going to school. I was able to go to school for drafting, computer-aided drafting. And my life just started to turn around.
0: Ah. And once you were released, you headed, what, to your brother Glenn, who was now running the family bakery, right?
1: Yeah. He was, was about that, eight years was that older a than me.
0: moment of capitulation, like, I've, I'm going to get a steady job and get my life together?
1: Yeah, and I, but but the thing was, you talked about at the beginning of the show about success and yeah. and what I, you know, what I see as success was the moment where I found the humility and the acceptance that this is who I am, and you know, I don't have to pretend to be a tough guy, a criminal, I all that stuff. I'm I'm moving on, and um, and from that point on, I was successful. I stopped hating on the cops, on my dad, on everybody. And even forgave myself and uh, I went to school and you know everything was great it was just like a spiritual experience
0: did you expect the the family to welcome you back to the local business did they did they set down any terms
1: well at at first I didn't want to go back because I had been so long and I I thought well you know I'm independent of that Um, but I saw my brother I talked to my brother a couple of times and there seemed to be a place where i could go there and use some of the newfound skills that i developed like in drafting which was all about design Mm -hmm. and creating products i i realized i could go do something and make it make a difference in my family's company and my brother saw that that might be a
0: possibility too so you get there and you you kind of became an idea guy What brought you to start developing a new recipe for organic and non-GMO bread?
1: Well, I had to make a mark in the company in order to, you know, to have my own piece. I, I, in order to get back and be a part owner in a company that really was, I wouldn't say struggling, but they were they were just doing private label goods at the time, and uh, in order for me to to get some ownership and make something happen, I had to create something. I thought that I would just make some good stuff that people would appreciate and I'd make a living. Um, and that was my my first idea was to go from, you know, market to market like Seattle, San Francisco, or whatever, and find what's selling there mm-hmm. locally by bakers and bring the idea back and replicate. Um, so that was my first idea, but I never got around to that.
0: You just started working with recipes right i mean how long did it take you to come up with the recipe
1: 43 years <laughs> <laughs> you know uh, it didn't happen it seemed like it happened overnight when i was ready but uh it took all those years to make it to make me ready so ah. i just got really into it i was working like a 40 hour week 45 hour week and then i was working another 40 hour week just uh creating Stuff and what I did is I tried to replicate what I thought were the best bread products out there, uh, and used the reverse engineering ideas that I'd developed in uh, in prison. Mm-hmm. And uh, once I figured out how to make what was great, I figured out how to make something killer.
0: Well, so well like, that that's the part that is is so amazing. It's that that moment. I mean, when that first loaf came out of the oven. Did you ever imagine the scale and the fans that it has today? I mean, you, you, no. you saw it come out. And, and describe what it was, because it was a special kind of bread. It was very creative.
1: Yeah, I designed all my breads in the early days. I designed around a name. I came up with a name first, and the first uh, bread that I came up with was called Blues Bread. And um, I loved the blues music. Mm-hmm. I played blues. And... I thought it sounded good, Blue's Bread. Uh, so I designed a loaf of bread around that, and the namesake was essentially the Blue Corn But, you know, you had to see the loaf of bread, and then you had to taste it to understand this was something different.
0: Oh, and then what was behind the name Dave's Killer Bread? When did that come into the picture?
1: My brother wanted to call it Dave's Bread. Um, <laughs> you know, Leave out wanted- the killer. Yeah, and I—I I was thinking, you know, I always thought, well, whatever I'm doing, this is an extension of the family. I want to be part of this family now. But my brother kind of thought, well, this needs to be something separate from, mm-hmm. from this, and you know, I, and the thing is, I—I I ran with it, you know. Um, but you know, by the time we actually decided on calling it Dave's Bread. I had made a loaf of bread called Killer Bread, and so those were the two first, Blues and Killer, mm. and um, eventually everybody just started calling all my bread Killer Bread.
0: Wow, well, amazing, uh, right? The word killer means amazing, at least on the West Coast where I grew yeah, up.
1: But but it's funny because people would always, you know, they went on, somebody went on TV and called me a killer. Said I killed somebody. You know, and uh, it was the best thing that ever happened because next thing you know, they're calling me to you know make the story right. So I I got all kinds of free publicity.
0: Well, once you got the recipe right and you had the name, you made enough what to haul your bread to the Portland Farmers Market. And for for those of you listening right now who don't know, the Portland Farmers Market began in a parking lot at Albers Mill, as it's called, I think back in 1992, with just 13 vendors. They were selling everything from local farm fresh food and five sites today, 200 vendors, including farms and flour growers, bakeries, meat, seafood providers, cheesemakers, specialty foods. But that moment, were you nervous as you brought your wares to the Portland farmer's market to start selling?
1: I wasn't unduly nervous. I thought, wow, this is such a great opportunity. Um, it was called, they had a, a festival, I guess you would call it, called the Summer Loaf. Um, for a couple of years, they would have an artisan bread festival. <laughs> how fortunate, <laughs> How what a lucky opportunity for me, right, when I'm getting out of prison, to get into this Summer Loaf uh, festival. And I was just, my bread was an immediate hit. People, I remember a lady early on, an older lady, walked up and was trying my samples. And she, wa- she tried them all and then she walked away. And I'm like, well, she kind of she thought we were okay. She tried them all, but then she comes back with like six people. <laughs> and it just kept on happening like this. I can't, you know, when you have a product, you just can't imagine it until you have it, a product that is like um, viral.
0: But in the earlier days, I don't want to say the olden days, in the 90s, viral meant word of mouth. And and clearly, you were watching that unfold right in front of your face. I mean, she came, tasted it, and said, I gotta go get my friends. I mean, that's what I'm hearing you tell us.
1: And this became a, a just a, a normal phenomenon that I saw on a regular basis.
0: Yeah, so people go wild. Um, You slap the caricature of yourself on the bread, and the caricature, for those of you who haven't seen it, is a muscly guy with a mustache. You're smiling. How much did the branding of it that way help to get the bread even more attention?
1: I think when you have a product that is – I think the product itself had to be amazing. Um, Always. Always. And then we had so much fun with the marketing and so much from the heart that I can't even say which ones were the best ideas, but you know, it was always fun and people Mm -hmm. caught up on that fun. And it was like, everybody shared it. You know, when Facebook came along, it was a beautiful thing because I was out in the market all the time talking to so many people, but it got to be so big, I couldn't talk to all the people anymore. And then Facebook comes along, and there it was. I was able to scale my own self. It was, it was pretty cool.
0: Interesting. Uh, so through all of that, the demand for the bread keeps increasing. You're coming out with new flavors. You've got the two packs, everything else. With rapid growth, always comes this need to ramp up hiring. Now, there was a type of employee that many companies will refuse to hire, but whom you actually welcomed, ex Ex-cons. Talk about that and how that issue began at your company.
1: Well, I, like I would have been a hell of a jack if I wasn't willing to give other people a chance, like I had been given. Um, when you think about how powerful my test, my own personal testimony was already at that point, that I was able to um, make a big difference in the company. Well, why couldn't other people do that? And I. You know, it wasn't like we were being selfless and just hiring people out of charity. We were hiring the right people for the job, and some of them happened to be felons.
0: Well, this goes back to the whole rate of recidivism, meaning the rate at which convicted criminals keep re-offending and returning to prison. It's high, mostly because nobody will give these people a job once they've served their time and they're out. How many ex-cons did you end up hiring?
1: Well, uh, it, it ended up being between thirty and forty percent, and then I think now it's still around. So, in other words, we had three hundred local uh, employees when I when I quit or when I when I uh, sold mm-hmm. sold out. Um, and not that doesn't count all the people that were working in other areas, but um, one third of those were ex-felons, and I believe that they keep that number about the same
0: well i was on the daves website and they profile what the company calls second chance employment and on the site it's described as a commitment to hiring people with criminal backgrounds and treating them just like everybody else now when you were running it as a family bakery with your with your brother you guys always said we will hire whoever can do the job so it could be, what, a veteran, you could have a disability, you might have a felony conviction in your past, you might be a young adult with no job experience. But the whole point was, if you can do it, you can have the job, right? Yeah.
1: And the thing is, is that people like that become are often very grateful and some of your hardest working and most motivated
0: folks. Did any of them become managers?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, we have some that are executives now. Oh, right. Uh, I, I, I've seen just one success story after another and you know what's cool is each one of these people makes a big difference in the community because they they just bring up the level of of hope and just make a difference in uh in their families and and beyond.
0: Well, they did something right because you found yourself and Dave's killer bread being sold in 8,000 locations around the country back then and And you know the book, What They Don't Teach You at Harvard Business School? I guess you had to learn it as you went along. How did you guys harness and deal with, you know, as a business anchor and reporter, I'm always thinking about this, deal with challenges related to rising costs, materials, supplies, labor, production?
1: Oh boy! You know, each and every one of those <laughs> is, is something we had to deal with, and more. A lot of a lot of it is just a lot of one of your biggest challenges, and one of your biggest opportunities is employees. You know, is your, your human resources, mm-hmm. and so we were we did pretty well with that, but um, we there came along um, a, a point. There came a point when things got a little bit beyond us, you know. And we were always trying to hire talent that could help us uh at the next level. Mm-hmm. But we had so many struggles with that being a small business. Our biggest challenge is a you know, family business. Um, our, our I think our biggest challenges were seeing through the BS. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people did not, there weren't the right, there weren't very many people qualified in the first place to do what we needed them to do. And secondly, they were just BS artists. And so we got screwed a few times.
0: Mm. And I'm sure that's what you have to learn as you're starting and running a business. But you did something right because the corporate food conglomerate guys, they came a calling. Did you eye yeah. them with suspicion or did you welcome them when they came and said, hey, l- let's make a deal?
1: No, we. It, it, I'll tell you what. By the time that was the second sale, the first sale we sold to half the company to Flowers Foods, which is a not Flowers Foods to uh, our good partners in New York, which uh, was a private equity firm, and it was by that time it was very important because we needed to get expertise on levels that we were not experts. So they helped us at that level, and then. We you know, a couple of years later we had with their help, we had grown the thing you know by leaps and bounds, and were able to um we were looking for a suitor like flowers birds,
0: oh, good, okay, so that was twenty twelve and you did sell to Flowers Foods, which, for those of you who have not heard of it, they own Canyon Bakehouse, Alpine Valley Bread, Nature's Own, Sunmade Breakfast Bread. Did you insist on certain things to retain the the genetics, the the great personality of Dave's Killer Bread?
1: We did on the first sale with with uh, with um, with good partners, but with Flowers, we were we didn't really have a lot of. Um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of bargaining power. Mm-hmm. We, we tried, we tried to do that, but the good thing is, a lot of it, a lot of our values are things that you know just make sense, and have they've continued to, um, to espouse those well, values. Well,
0: second chance hiring, second chance yep. employment—that's great. And yep. and I guess what you personally netted some thirty-three million in the sale. That must have been, like I'm sure, an exciting but strange feeling for you. <laughs>
1: yeah because you know what money i never I never prepared myself to be a rich guy mm-hmm. uh, It never was something that even was on my pla on my you know horizon that I knew of until until it was and so for me, the happiness you talk about the success I define success by what's in your mind and how your heart you how you feel and and how you approach life uh when the money came along it was um, actually, challenging to maintain that um, that healthy mind.
0: Oh, I'm sure. Uh, well, you became a local celebrity in Portland. I mean, there there became these full size cardboard cutouts of your caricature, sales through the roof. Everyone saw. Success when they looked at Dave's killer brand, killer bread brand. But I guess your view was starting to turn a little different, right?
1: Well, by I'd say by 2013, I was, I, you know, the thing was I was drinking, I, I started celebrating my success, and
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, I realized eventually that drinking was not something that I wanted to add into my um, my recipe and life. So, um, I but at the time, I was just having fun and. One thing led to another, you know, and uh, I was getting I was definitely ready to move on, and yet I was having a hard time giving up my baby.
0: sure. I mean that's this is sort of where we get to the definition of success as a way station versus an end to the great story. you your alcoholism got so bad that you took a sabbatical. What was that like to have to be making that yeah. decision?
1: Well, at first it was kind of a relief. I'm, you know, I'm going to get away from this stress. Mm-hmm. And then after a while, I'm like, well, wait a minute. I'm. They're banning me from my own company where I go. Used to walk around, and it was my, it was my baby. So. Uh, so it was a
0: forced I, sabbatical.
1: Yeah. Well, I, it was agreed, but I think I would have been forced if I hadn't agreed. And, okay. uh So eventually, uh, I started just feeling resentful, you know, um, because. I had built this thing, not not alone, but it was definitely I was definitely a pretty key ingredient to building this thing. And now I'm feeling like uh, I'm being, you know, marginalized. And I I I had to admit that you know I was creating the problem, but it was still difficult.
0: Well, could you sense that you were starting to spiral downward again?
1: No, because I, I I hadn't become a criminal. You know, I hadn't, it's a totally different kind of thing. So it was, it was, sure. it was a different way of spiraling out of control that I didn't see
0: coming. In November of 2013, you drove to the company building. What happened when you got there?
1: Well, you talked about the cardboard cutouts. I saw a cardboard cutout of myself, and I go, I remember, you know, I didn't actually think these things, but I felt, uh, hey, this guy, this, cardboard cutout of me is okay. They can use this, but I walk in and I'm not welcome. So I punched the cardboard cutout. And that was kind of like the beginning of a bad day.
0: Well, uh, you had some obstacles after that. I mean, you got into it with police, right? Didn't they show up?
1: Yeah. Well, well, it wasn't right right away. Kind of a lot of things happened. Mm -hmm. And then by that evening, um, I was psychotic at that point. You know, I, my, Anger, resentment, or whatever had fed, um, or, you know, my mind, my mental... uh, State. State. And I just wasn't right. And uh, some friends tried to get mental health to come see me in Washington County, but the cops showed up instead. And it was, I don't even know what happened at that point, but it got, you know the the police reports say one thing and
0: <laughs> you remember my another said
1: something else yeah
0: well i guess some of the employees at the time said that you were talking strangely and equating yourself it. to jesus and well, do you remember any of that myself
1: to jesus. i was uh, that's what some uh, some people were saying but mm. i was probably quoting jesus uh, or quoting you know okay. Spiritual leaders and things, thinking I may have been on a spiritual, uh, you know, sort of a trip and going somewhere. There was definitely some issues there, sure. And uh, but I didn't. I never saw myself as like Jesus.
0: A year later, I guess some more obstacles came your way. You were still drinking, and then you had the death of a friend whom you had been drinking with. You know, at what point did you do, Dave? Finds his way again, part 2.
1: Hmm. Well, right after the incident with with the cops, where I, I smashed into three cop cars in and, and a psychotic um, situation, mm-hmm. uh, when I eventually I woke up, I read an article about myself in the local paper, and it, it just freaked me out and um, brought me on my on my butt. I became more depressed than I'd ever been before. It was a
0: negative article.
1: Yeah. Okay. Uh, It was negative because, yeah, I'll keep it simple, but uh, it was negative, and I'm not used to seeing, I wasn't used to seeing negative press. Mm -hmm. And so it just shocked me. And, um, but I just was, I had been hypomanic, they call it, after the incident where I'm still, like, not quite right. Mm -hmm. And I'm on a high until I read this article, and then I'm on a great low, a serious low, and I'm like, how do I get out of this? I've been talking about overcoming for years. But I don't know if I can
0: overcome this. Well, it sounded like bipolar.
1: Exactly what it was. I was oh.
0: diagnosed bipolar. Ah.
1: So I've been taking the bipolar meds ever since. But it took me quite a, this was six years ago, and it's taken me quite, uh, it took me several years just to kind of get to where I could go back out and 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 start up again, you know.
0: And starting up again, you did. You, we come to today. You've moved on to a brand new business venture. Talk about what you're doing.
1: I do so many things. I need, I'm trying to simplify my life, but <laughs> uh, you know, one of the things I do that I, I kind of created another monster with African art, and uh, it was it was actually a passion that turned into a business that is now something that um, I still have, and I, it employs people, it keeps people working. It, it's good in that way, uh, but I'm in a liquidation mode now. I'm just... Uh, if anybody that's interested should go check out my website, because the deals are incredible.
0: Uh, well, have you been to Africa? Where did this come from? You're a guy from Portland. Uh,
1: no, everybody asks that, because it, it, they just hear the African part. Well, Really, it's the, the primitiveness of the old ar- African art that, huh. and the, the the raw, rugged, uh, kind of aggressive.
0: Oh, I, I get it. I mean, my dad yeah. was bitten by the love of African art. He was a surgeon. But one day, he came home with a collection of about 28 African coconut heads, these uh, these masks made out of coconut shells. I mean, we kids were delighted. My mother was not thrilled. She She would say, it's an acquired taste, one which I have yet to acquire.
1: Uh, your, your parents obviously were uh, high, <laughs> highbrow folks.
0: <laughs> but how how has this venture and some others helped with your healing process?
1: It, you know, it's great. It could have been something else, I suppose, but it couldn't have been guitars. It couldn't have been cars. Um, I had to get obsessed with something that had nothing to do with Dave Dahl. And, you know, that's it. It isn't because I love Africa per se. I've never been there. Mm-hmm um it's because i love the art and it totally gets me used to it helped me for two or three years just forget about me
0: how's your relationship with your brother and your family today
1: it's funny uh a year ago we were i was still struggling with with forgiveness and kind of like you know looking at things as a family instead of business partners uh, we've we're far enough away from the business now that i think that um that we're able to all forgive each other and and sort of just be family members, and I'm really you know happy about
0: that. Excellent. You know, you've got quite the roller coaster story of success. Where are you today when you think about the definition of success?
1: Uh, again, you know what the definition of success? That's a great question because when I am passionate about something. And I'm working hard on something, maybe not too hard, because I need a little balance in my life. Uh, but when I am motivated and making something happen and I'm making a difference, uh, you know, in my life, in my family's life, and in, in my community and beyond, that is success to me.
0: I don't know if you know, but, you know, we love food here at Everyone Talks to Liz, because uh, we love eating it, yeah, but but because more than a handful of our guests have pulled themselves out of poverty and found great wealth and success by making food and selling it. We had Ann Byler, who grew up in Pennsylvania Amish country, and in order to support her family, she made pretzels, and and yes, she's that Ann who founded Auntie Ann's Pretzels. Haki Agdenes is this once homeless immigrant who now owns a fast growing chain. Called Champion Pizza, Richard Ang, who founded Black Label Donuts. Uh, Dave, let me be honest. I can't cook. Where <laughs> can you give me your best tip when it comes to baking?
1: Oh, baking! Um, <laughs> wow, I mean, I'm not a cook either, but you know I can do anything if I know what I'm doing. Um, but baking, it takes a little of experience. You have to learn how certain things. act certain ingredients how they the properties of those ingredients wheat is a, a complex uh grain it does a lot of cool things and if you don't know what you're doing those cool things don't happen
0: well don't you almost have to understand chemistry to be able to be a great cook or baker
1: i think you have to have a basic common sense about it um you have to be able to, you know, you have to get, have basic math and basic science mentality. You have to use scientific method. I use scientific method when I create um, products because I'm constantly doing, uh, you know, controls and uh, and seeing you know, what, a, what a slight difference does to it.
0: When and, you're at home, do you still bake?
1: No, but... Uh, everybody always bugs me about it, so uh, Christmas <laughs> is here, and um the kids are like, let's do some sin dogs, and sin dogs are cinnamon, um, whole grain cinnamon pastries that, you know, are really <gasps> special, but they don't make them anymore, so I'm going to make them with the kids.
0: Oh, they sound so good. Yeah. Oh, my entire crew is nodding from the, from the s- other you know side what? of the glass radio booth here saying, yeah, 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 we I'm need gonna those. I'm to
1: your address and send you one because they, they, <gasps> you can actually ship those across country. So I'll ship you a box.
0: Oh, we're so happy. Okay. We're yeah. getting right on the phone with you afterward for that. Okay. Dave, we are so happy for you. Dave Dahl of Dave's Killer Bread. You know, we wish you a detour-free ride on your path to a happy and peaceful life.
1: Thank you. I'm very blessed, and uh, it's been a real pleasure. Oh,
0: God bless you. We're thrilled to have you. Gang, I hope you've gleaned One really important thing from this, success is not an end point. It's just part of the journey. Thank you so much for inviting us into your world, whether you're in your car, on the train listening, plane, or or just baking in your kitchen. We are glad to have you check in every week with Everyone Talks to Liz. And make sure to catch me Monday through Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern on the Clayman Countdown on the Fox Business Network. Dave, you're going to watch, right?
1: Absolutely. From now on, all the time.
0: You better. I I think you like what you learn about money.
1: I love Vox. I'll be there.
0: (laughs) Well, you, you did something right on your own before us. It's great to have you. Thank you so much.
1: All right. Thank you so much.
0: Gang, have a great day.
1: The Will Cain Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox & Friends weekend host Will Cain as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts.